Good morning, brothers and sisters. So I had been preparing all week to preach on the second part of the gospel today, but because of more recent events, presumably on Friday, I thought it would be appropriate to focus on these messages since they're so pertinent today. And so I wanted to go over or reiterate two church teachings that we have to keep in mind at this time. The first, of course, is the church's teaching on abortion. And if you want to read that up, just get your catechism. Again, there's an index in the back. It'll tell you which paragraphs to look for. And they begin on paragraph 2270. And it gives very specific quotes and references. And it spells out the teaching absolutely. Now, to summarize, so I don't have to read to you, abortion is intrinsically evil because it's the murder of an innocent human life. The church rightly teaches that Life begins at conception. At that moment, even though the person is really, really tiny, they're still a person. And so they have the rights and the dignity of a person. And in their innocence, their life must be protected. The command, thou shalt not kill, is thou shalt not murder the innocent. That's what it literally translates into from the Hebrew. Thou shalt not take the life of the innocent. And of course, these are the most innocent of people. They're the most vulnerable of people. And some like to argue it's not a person yet because it's not fully developed. Well, that means toddlers aren't persons and so you can abort them too. I mean, they're not fully developed. It takes decades for a human to become fully developed. Nine months in the womb is a short time in comparison. So the church's teaching is clear and the church has taught this from the beginning. A very clear condemnation of the evils of abortion is found in the Didache, one of the earliest documents of the church. It's clarified by the earliest popes. Why? Because this isn't a new teaching. It's the same teaching that was adhered to in the Old Testament and by the Israelite people. The taking of a life in the womb, because this is a real human person, is intrinsically evil. It breaks the fifth commandment. I had to think about that for a second. I have to do all the first communion tests, and so they're making sure I have them memorized as well. So again, look it up in the catechism if you just want a, a clear explanation, our stance on this. Now, on one level, we can consider the Supreme Court decision a great victory, precisely because federal law forced the legalization of abortion upon the country. So thank God that that's over, and now states can decide. But we're not done, that's just the beginning. The next step for us is to get North Carolina declared a state of life, meaning abortion is completely illegal. The church explains in the catechism that the laws of nations, of any nation, must protect life. And that's an obligation, it's not an option. It doesn't matter what religion you are, it doesn't matter what country you live in. All civil laws must protect life, and if they don't, then all of the laws of that nation are corrupt. Because life, individual personhood, is the basis for all law, the good of the person. And if you don't protect the innocent life, then the rest of the laws can't do any good for those people. So we have to fight for that first in our state. That's our next goal is to make North Carolina a state where 
we make all forms of murder illegal. All forms of murder. Then we work on the rest of the states, and then we take over the whole country for Jesus. Not for Trump, for Jesus. That's just a very simple point. I've preached on it before. All of you know this, but again, it bears repeating at this time in this place. The second point I want to reference is the church's teaching on self-defense or just war theory. The reason it's important that we talk about it at this time is because it's clear that there are many on the extreme pro-choice side who have been violent, some towards people, mostly towards buildings and things, have been violent and it could become more violent. And that's certainly the case. So what are our God-given rights in regard to self-defense? And this can be a difficult and a sensitive topic. If you want to look it up in the catechism, it's explained under avoiding war. So it begins paragraph 2307, and it gives the church's teaching, the teaching that's been around since the beginning, that has always been held. This is the teaching of Christ as explained by the church. And even though war can be just, self-defense of a nation, the goal of every Christian is to avoid it insofar as possible. And that's the thing we have to begin with in regards to any form of self-defense. Where the taking of another life is required to defend your life or the lives of the innocent, that is always the last resort. You don't begin with, well, I'm just going to kill him. No, that, that, that's the final goal. Not goal, sorry. That's the final choice you have to make. Sorry, Freudian slip. I apologize. <laughs> so you need to do everything in your power, reasonably speaking, to avoid taking a life, even if that life is guilty. Many bring up the question, well, Father, what about the fifth commandment? Thou shalt not kill. Again, in Hebrew, it says, thou shalt not take the life of an innocent. We're not talking about taking innocent life. We're talking about taking guilty people's lives, people who are threatening our lives. And the church and Christ has always supported this because life is precious and it's a gift from God and we have to protect and defend it insofar as that is possible. That doesn't mean we can't willingly sacrifice our lives if we want to. Clearly, that's the example that Christ gave us. But we do have the right to defend it. And one of the passages that can help you understand this from our Lord is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. Uh, and again, many people misinterpret our Lord because they assume he's a pacifist. They think, no, Jesus is a pacifist. I mean, even in the Gospel, what did you hear today? He's going to be passing through Samaria. So the apostles are going ahead and announcing his coming. They go to a Samaritan village, and they won't accept him because he's going to Jerusalem. The Samaritans don't like the Jews, generally speaking. So what do James and John ask the Lord? Right? These are the sons of thunder. Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? I mean, you have to love that. Why would they ask him this question? Now, he rebukes them. That's what the gospel says. He turned and rebuked them. He basically said, hey, knock it off. Seems like a pacifist to me. He's God. He didn't fight back when they came to arrest him. We're mistaken if we think our Lord is a pacifist. Now, there are any number of 
scripture passage I could read to you. I'll give some more in explanation in a moment. But the one I wanted to focus on is after the Last Supper, when our Lord was about to head into Gethsemane, this is what he says to his apostles. When I sent you forth without money bag or sack or sandals, were you in need of anything? No, nothing, they replied. He said to them, but now one who has a money bag should take it, and likewise a sack, and one who does not have a sword should sell his cloak and buy one. Then they said, Lord, look, there are two swords here. But he replied, it is enough. So here's our Lord telling the apostles to sell their cloaks and go buy swords. Now some say he's just teaching them a lesson because what happens in the garden later on? Well, some men come to arrest him, and the apostles, if you read, actually say, Lord, what do you want us to do? Now, before Jesus can say anything, what happens? Peter draws his sword, and he cuts off the right ear of the, the high priest slave, right? This is my right. Yes, you're, so this side for you. So he cuts off the right ear of the high priest slave, and our Lord immediately rebukes him. Put that away, Peter. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. And then he touches the servant's ear, and he heals him. So again, it would seem that, well, why is he telling us to have swords and then he's telling us not to use them? It seems very contradictory. Well, the church and the fathers have explained this by the classic interpretation. Whenever there seem to be contradictions, most of the time when you're interpreting scripture, it's going to be both and. So it's not either you're a pacifist or either you can go kill people. The balance is it depends on the circumstances. It depends on the situation. Our Lord is letting us know that it's okay to have weapons, to bear arms and defend yourself. But that doesn't mean it's always okay. It depends on the circumstances. And one of the basic teachings of the church in this case is... If there is no chance, no reasonable chance of you winning, you should simply surrender and submit. So if a hundred people come to attack me with swords, and I have one sword, and I say to them, look, you may get me in the end, and you're definitely going to, but I'm going to get at least one of you, taking one of you with me. The church actually condemns that. That would be unjust, because in that instance, it would merely be revenge. And our Lord always condemns revenge. If there's no chance, no hope of me winning in a battle, I'm actually supposed to surrender. I'm supposed to lay down my arms and give my life up. Now, how do you know if you have a reasonable hope of survival in a self-defense situation or in a war? It's not always obvious. Even last night after Mass, somebody asked me about the war in Ukraine. I mean, do we really think the little nation of Ukraine is going to beat Russia? No, but they have a reasonable hope that other nations are going to get involved and help. So that changes the scenario. Whoever is making that decision, whoever's in charge, whether it's in a nation or an individual, in a position where they need to defend themselves or defend others, they are the one who prudently have to make that decision. Is there a reasonable hope that I could win? If I can't win, I'm supposed to surrender. And that's something we have to take in mind. Again, 
War or killing is the last result. Last result. No. Resort. Thank you. Couldn't think of the word. The last resort. <laughs> no start with an R. And then, uh, secondly, if there's no hope, no chance of us succeeding, then simply surrender and submit, even if that means your death. Now, these are hard teachings, but these are the ones that Christians are meant to follow. These are the ones that Christ himself teaches us. Now, again, back to the idea that Christ is a pacifist. All you have to do is read the rest of the Bible, and you can tell that God is not a pacifist. Where do you think James and John got the idea of calling down fire from heaven to consume them? You think they made that one up? They knew they had the power to do it. They just needed the permission. Because every prophet in the Old Testament could do this. All of the great prophets could call down fire from heaven. How do you think Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed? Fire from heaven. Now, does that mean humans have this power? No. God is the one who did it. God is the one who have, who's wiped out entire cities. In fact, when the Israelites were entering into the promised land, they were required, according to God's command, to wipe out every nation in that area. All of the towns and villages and all of the peoples. In fact, the command, as was given through Moses and Joshua, the command was to put all of these nations under the ban. Now, this is an old expression among Jews. It's basically a curse. So it's not just beating them in battle. It's once they win the battle to kill every man, woman, and child, to burn their crops, to kill their animals. And if they took any gold or silver, it had to go to the temple of the Lord. They couldn't keep it themselves. When Christians learn this, they become a little surprised and sometimes a little concerned. Clearly, God didn't tell them to do that. That's just maybe they misinterpreted him. I mean, it was a more brutal time, right? No, no, no. The scriptures are absolutely clear. God gave this command. Now, how could God, Christ who is the Prince of Peace, how could that same person, in union with the Father and the Spirit, subject even innocent children to death? Well, it's very simple. He's God. He can do what he wants. He's the God of life and of death. He gives life in the womb, and he takes life at its final breath. Remember that the angel of death is not a grim reaper, right? It's not some black-cloaked guy with a, a sigh. It's the angel of death because it's an angel, not a demon. The church has always taught that the only time somebody can die is because God wills it. The only time somebody is conceived is because God wills it. Yes, humans are involved in those choices as well, but ultimately it's the will of God. And then many people think, okay, fine, if God can will that, why would he? These children don't get to live a life. That's terrible. That's tragic. Yes, if you have an earthly perspective on things, but if you believe that our homeland is in heaven, if you believe that being happy in heaven with God is better than any life you could ever have on earth, then who cares how old the person is when they die? If it's God's will, even a child, he can take them to be with him. And I'm sure in many of those villages in the promised land where all of these men, women, and children were killed, 
I'm sure a lot of those children were innocent, hopefully most of them. Well, they're not going to go to hell. These are difficult teachings, but we need to remember the church never has been because Christ is not a pacifist. So why does he tell James and John and the other apostles not to destroy the Samaritan village? Why does he rebuke them? Again, because there's a time and there's a place for everything. And Jesus did not come to condemn. He came to save. That doesn't mean he won't condemn one day, but that's not why he came. He's going to find every means possible to save them, and only as a last resort will our Lord condemn. So in regards to self-defense, it's the same thing for each one of us. We, like Christ, need to do everything in our power to save lives, even, appropriately if necessary, sacrificing our own. However, there will be at times in which it is not only just, but right, that we take the life of somebody who's trying to take our life or the life of our children. One of the things that we have here at St. Dorothy's is a number of parishioners who have concealed carry, and they carry at Mass. I, I know who they are, so don't worry. You don't need to. And we're setting up a training program for them. So any of you who do, please call the office and talk to me so that we can get a date and set it but we're going to have a training program just to make sure that here in St. Dorothy's, we're all protected. Nobody's worried. I have had men suggest that I keep a concealed Gary gun behind the altar. Uh, I have to admit, it's a little shocked by the suggestion. So let me clarify. <laughs> I don't, I won't. I'd rather get shot. I'd rather get shot than do that. My job, especially here in the Church of Christ is to imitate Christ as perfectly as possible. It's one of the reasons I don't have a wife and my own biological children. It's because it makes it easier for me to die for you, to die for Christ. I don't have dependents that need me. I don't have to defend my own life. And even outside of this church, if somebody threatened my life, I would rather them kill me than I kill them if I'm the only one threatened. However, that would be different if there were other innocent lives in need of protection. God forbid I never have to do such a thing. But what if I'm driving by a school and I see somebody with some young person with a gun running in? Yes, I'll call the police, but I'm not just going to stop. I've got a nine millimeter in a safe in my car. I'm gonna grab the gun and I'm gonna go in and try to save lives. Now I'm a decent shot. Maybe I could take out their knees, I don't know. Probably not that good, but. God forbid, even if I had to take a life in defense of others, I would carry that around till I died. There would be no sin in it, but it would be a burden for me, and I think it should be. Not so much because I'm worried about their body, because I'd be worried about their soul. I'd be worried about their soul. That's our primary goal as believers, the souls of others. And you need to have concern for the souls of even those who threaten your life, even those 
lives that you may have to take in self-defense. If you know your history, 40 years after Jesus suffered and died and rose from the dead, the city of Jerusalem was totally destroyed by the Romans. Now, our Lord prophesied the destruction. He warned the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem in particular, if you don't repent and follow me, you will all be destroyed. If you remember when he was carrying his cross, what did he say to the weeping women of Jerusalem? Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Why their children? Because their children were adults in 70 AD. The children of those women who were crying over him were adults and living in Jerusalem when it was destroyed and when everyone was killed. And this was the punishment that God subjected them to because they rejected him. But he gave them 40 years. You see how patient he is. You see how merciful he is. But we have to remember that our God, who seeks all ways of saving souls, in the end will condemn and punish if they do not first repent. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.